לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה מאה ושתיים שלוש מרגישים קיץ באוויר I'm Rabbi Elliot Malman at Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation Tanshi Ahmed. And joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter, Day School, Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky at Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you. We have an amazing Parsha. This is Parsha Noah, the second Parsha in the Torah. We got a good start with Breshit, but now things seem to be going uh, steadily, swiftly, Downhill or underwater. Noah. <laughs> Tell us about Noah. What strikes you about the character of Noah, Barry Chesler? No, I, I think we have to go to the beginning of the Parsha, obviously. He's described as Isadik Batoratov, a righteous person in his generation. And the rabbis pick up on the apparently superfluous word Batoratov um, in his generations and offer, and the rabbis collectively offer two interpretations. One is that he is righteous in his generation, but that he lived in another generation, such as that of Abraham, he would not be so righteous because in the world of the blind, a one-eyed person sees far is the image that Rashi quotes. And the second one is that in fact, Noah is perhaps even greater than Abraham because he had no role models. And Humanity was so deficient that he had to struggle mightily to become righteous in his generation. And like a lot of other rabbinic discussions of this kind, it's not actually resolved here, although there are other comments later in the Parsha that suggest that Noah, in fact, is inferior to Abraham. I suppose that's our bias as Jewish readers of the Hebrew scripture. But I think that when we look at Noah, we're reminded that there's a fine line between pathos and being pathetic. That on one hand, we want to empathize with Noah, but on the other hand, we find him seriously wanting. What, what do you think, as, as, a, as a statement about human behavior in human society, which, which of those two things uh, rings true with you? That, that you know, like we, we, we tend to measure people against uh, their, their contemporaries and, you know, somebody can be the best of a bad lot, or it maybe it takes some really great moral fiber and virtue to be good in a bad world. Maybe that shows that somebody's gotten more, you know, gotten more in the in the uh, in their resource kit, in their toolkit than some. It's, it's easy to be it's easy to be righteous when the world is righteous. What do you right. think? Well, I'm reminded of the phrase I guess in Shmu in Tehillim maybe it is where you know. Yafta, well, actually, it's a rabbinic comment. Yaftach Bedoro, Kashmuel Bedoro, or something like that. That Yaftach, who was a singularly wanting judge, although a brilliant military tactician and strategist, um, that's who we had in his generation. And then we had Shmuel in his generation, who was far superior, but you don't get to choose. 
In other words, you have to play the hand that you're dealt. And for the generation of Noah, Noah was the ace of spades. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I find it appealing to think that, um, that it, it takes real effort to be even partially good in a bad world. Like I find it appealing to think that Noah, uh, if, if everybody around him was doing X or Y or Z, the ability to resist that shows, it speaks well of your character. You know, it's very interesting, you know, our experiences with teaching this uh, to a certain age group, 13, 14, and of course, peer pressure is really paramount in those, uh, in that, those ages, as they, as they would be, I guess, you know, in some way later on in life. And um, kids could relate to this, that to break away from your peer group and to not do, to differentiate yourself from your, your, your peers is, it actually takes quite, quite an extraordinary amount of of courage, of strength. So, you know, what is it that defines him as such a, he walks with God. There's something that, that is godly about him. There's something that, that God likes about him. At least we, we get the sense that God prefers or, or will turn to him as opposed to anybody else because God has, a, has tremendous disappointment in the world. And let's take a moment to talk about about that, Jeremy, you know. Well, the, the Parshat Breshit, you know, is is um, uh, very finely, you know, the, the Parshiot break up the way they do, you know, post-biblical. The Bible doesn't divide into Parshiot. The Bible doesn't even divide into chapters. It's, it's later readers who did that. But Breshit is a very finely wrought creation because it starts off with, like God looks at all that God has done, and it's, it's very good. And the letters of Tov Me'od, as the Midrash says, you scramble up the letters, you get Tov Adam. People are good. But by the end of the parasha, it's, it's God is sorry he ever made these stupid people. And, and um, they, they're rak rak kol hayom. They have just, they're just ra, they're just bad all day long. So um, Breshit uh, goes from you know, very promising beginning to a very great disappointing end. And the the image of Noah, I mean, this is why I'm not saying anything that's not like been said a gazillion times before, but the reason why Noah, you know, strikes me as deficient is I can't quite imagine how walking with God, but ignoring people is a good path, right? I mean, Noah is told uh, the world's terrible, and I'm going to wash it all away and start all over again. And he doesn't appear to, uh, or at least in Torah, does not describe him as turning to his fellow human beings and saying, guys, we better do something. He, he's like saving himself. So and I, I want to take issue with that a little bit. I think that that's a common refrain is to think that the person didn't do enough. I mean, we've all been in that situation and we've seen people in that situation, but the people are incredibly bad. You know, the word that's used in Hebrew is like every form of corruption seems to embody the people. And I don't think that Noah or anyone else could be successful in that environment working with the people. And that's why he doesn't no. deal with them. I, you know, that's, that's not entirely satisfying to me because um, it, it certainly may be true, and maybe the Bible is, you know, bringing home the story that God has given up on the people. The world is, as, as you said, 
you know, that it's nishchat and and, and uh, this full of Hamas and all of the badness. Um, but we do have, you know, we're just not, we're not so long away from Yom Kippur in which uh, Yonah ben Amitai walks into the middle of Nineveh, the worst place on earth and says, 40 days and you're all going to be, you're all going to be overthrown. And they go, oh my God, let's turn this thing around. And, and Abraham, because, because Noah and Abraham are always, uh, you know, paired, it, it's hard not to, to think about that not too long away when Abraham is going to, God says, ah, the stone, but I'm all right. I just got to get rid of these people. And Abraham says, wait a minute. Like, can we think twice about this one? And Noah, I, I find Noah's obedience admirable, but it's just a little hard for me to, uh, to, to not think that the Torah, in telling the story, should, should give us a person who, you know, try, maybe build a bigger boat and take a few people with you. Does, does Noah know that, that everybody's going to be destroyed? Does Noah, is, God says, Vakimoti et briti itach, I'm going to maintain, I'm going to uphold my covenant with you. So he's, he's basically saying, um, to destroy everything. Um, uh, I will maintain a covenant with you or, or, or sustain a covenant with you. So you're going to have a family in there. And so, and so Noah then has the understanding of the world in terms of the, his core nuclear family, that is him, his wife, uh, his three sons and their daughters. And from that, they're going to rebuild the world. Does, to what extent does that really penetrate his, his consciousness? So, you know, obviously this is the story that he is the second Adam it is God washing the, the filthiness of the world away, and that's powerful. But I just want to say, just, just today happens to be that I went to go visit one of my congregants, Yochebed Muffs, the widow of the late Yochanan Muffs, and, um, and she is 94 years old. And uh, so they, they have a bunch of, of uh, books, and she pressed me to take several copies of Love and Joy and uh, Yochanan's essays, and Yochanan his probably most famous essay is about the prophet as the person who stands in the breach, arguing on behalf of the people towards God and arguing on behalf of God towards the people and mediating that relationship between an angry divine and a faithless people and working it out, you know, prevents God from destroying the people, prevents the people from, from, you know, argues the people that they've got to reorient towards the divine. And the, the prophet is that hinge figure. Moshe, God says to Moshe all the time, that's the hell with these people, I'm starting again with you. And Moshe always says, no, thank you. Noach says, God says to Noach, the hell with these people, I'm going to start again with you. And Noach says, okay. So what seems to me in the context of biblical prophecy, context of biblical you know, the, theology and, and religious relationship, is that Noach is an obedient guy and not a prophet, not somebody who's playing that role of trying to uh, orient the divine and the people to each other, which, by the way, like as, as Barry said, may be the appropriate answer for this destroyed, corrupt world. But it's very different than what will be the case with the people we will know as the prophets of Israel. So this becomes, you know, in light of the later stories, this becomes troubling about the character of Noah, that he doesn't protest, that he goes along, and that, and that he understands the world as God is telling him, and why wouldn't he do that? And that 
and that the world that God is telling him is you, the world that will be created with you, that you will be the progenitor of the next of the next world. Yeah. I, I have to push back again. Um, I think that sometimes we minimize the the strength and the character that it takes to hear the voice of God, which I think in real life is never as clear as it is in the Torah itself, where it just says God spoke and apparently the human being listens. And I think we have to imagine Noah in this world where people are bad and they're bad every day. It's not like they're taking a break to be good for a few years or a few months or a few weeks even. They're described as being irredeemably bad. And Noah is given his commandment to build the ark. And by building the ark, I think if we follow the rabbis, people are invited to ask them, why are you doing this? And there is some buy-in, but you can't beat people over the head. You know, I just want to say one thing about the divine in this story. It's like, you know, uh, we are accustomed to thinking, and this is like, this is real, you know, this is a real religious orientation. We're accustomed to thinking about the perfection of the divine and God as a paradigm for goodness and a paradigm for all kinds of either metaphysical or, or moral goodness. And it's interesting to me that the very beginning of the Torah, as I think describes biblical, you know, religion, like God, God's magnificent creation turned out to stink. Like God, God, God is regretting. You know, we say, of course, God, God is small. Says, is God a person that can change change his mind? No, of course not. Well, actually, yes, the Bible says God changed his mind. I'm sorry, I did this, and this turned out awful, and I'm going to crumple it up and start all over again. I think it's an interesting religious feature of the portrait of the of the divine in these first chapters of Breshit that God is not seen to be. Like maybe Breshit Aleph, yes, but not in these other passages that are much more fraught with um, uh, failure. Okay, so that God tells Noah to go into the ark. Take you, you go and your whole household. And then verse seven of chapter seven. Noah and his sons go, and his wife and the wives of his sons go. And that prompts the idea that, that Noah goes with his sons and his wife goes with his daughters-in-law prompts the rabbis to, to make the following midrash that, that during the course of the, the year, life is frozen. There's a kipa'on. There is just a, a freezing of all human relations that in fact, no relations take place between anyone on the boat. Um, and that uh, there is a separation between between the two between uh, Noah and his wife and his sons' wives and uh, and, and his sons. Um, do you you know? And then of course I, I'm leading to the fact that in the end, when God says to Moses to Noah, you and your wife, it's a subtle way of the Torah telling us we want you to renew your relationship. We want you to renew. A, a living relationship. And at that then, point... Then say the next part, yeah. Okay, and so at that point, Noah goes out, but Noah goes out with his son. So let me recap, so because it's complicated. God says, go in with your family, and Noah goes in, you know, they go in basically with a mechitza, okay? And then go out without a mechitza. But Noah still goes out 
with uh, Mechitza. In other words, there is no sense that he wants to renew the relationship here and whether or not that fullness of human relationships will exist afterwards. Right, but how could he? I mean, look at the world that he's going out into. It's a world that has been completely destroyed. Everything he knew is God. Why would he think that anything from the old world is going to be valid in the new world, including the relations with his wife? Do you think, do you think that um, it's, it's interesting because of the, you know, going two by twos. So the uh, sustenance of animal life is supposed to be supposed to be, you take a male and a female and you put them on the, the boat and, um, and then is it a, they will be animals and they will, they will have sex and reproduce on the boat. Or do we think it is like, as exactly as, as you just said, Elliot, they go in ma- males alone, females alone. Then God says, go out male and female. And they don't follow that. They're tr- too traumatized or too, you know, disbelieving or whatever. And they go out males alone and females alone. But do how does that match up to a story that is, you know, for all the animals? Okay, so I think I think the story works mythologically in that in that it, it it's a it's a freezing of life. I've talked about this before that that the boat itself is shaped like a sarcophagus, and that it's really a death and a relife. So that or or, or, or the resuscitation that, that I think the idea of everything on the boat being in suspended animation for it's a year and a, it's a year what is it a year and a month right? But uh, they don't go out till the twenty seventh day of the second month. Um, so it's it's actually thirteen close to thirteen months, 14 months of, of being inside the boat. Um, and so l- things are suspended. Um, and yeah, no, nobody's having sex on the boat. <laughs> it's not the love boat. This is not the love boat. Speaking, how would it work? I mean, the boat is finite. You imagine when they all get on the boat at the beginning before the rain start, that it's full. Yes. And you can't imagine that it's can become more full in the course of the year, especially when you think about it. What else is there to do? Practically, <laughs> they had they had uh, the internet. I think they had Wi-Fi. But the, <laughs> the <laughs> you have to think, as Elliot suggested, that it is a suspended life that yeah. they're going into this boat and they're you know freezing time. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's really very persuasive that they are freezing time. I, I like that. I like that a lot. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Because you don't have, you then you ask yourself, well, what where's all the food, and how do they clean out the cages, and stuff like that. But no, no, it's it's just a frozen thing, and it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of, you know, the, the climax or the conclusion of Moby Dick, where where Yishmael is saved by floating in a coffin, and um, uh, and so I think this works really, you know, powerfully here. That, that so, so, the so the, take take Noah then as the paradigm of the survivor, which which we want, we want to talk about because here uh, we want to address Noah with, a, with a, I think, a great deal of sympathy. His whole world is destroyed. He really didn't know how to relate to other people prior to the flood. It's only him and his family. He's been promised to regenerate uh, all of human civilization. And um, I, I think it's too overwhelming for him. I mean, 
Can you give me a, a critical or sympathetic reading of what happens to Noah afterwards? Just Jeremy, just tell our listeners what actually happens when he comes. So first of all, it takes him it takes him an awful lot of time to get get out of the boat. He doesn't want to get out of the boat. Yeah, he doesn't want to get him out of the boat. get back to life. And he goes back without without he goes back still with you know, his relationship with his sons. Um, God promises him, they make the covenant, etc. And let's, we'll move to the very next scene, which is the scene where Noach is now Ishadama. We have gone from Noach Ish Tzadik to Noach Ishadama. It's not to be pejorative about a man of the earth. Men of the earth, people of the earth are, are, are good people. They are, they are productive people. But they, they, you know, there's something about earthy people. They're, they don't. Well, you know, b- before we get before we get to the, the Ish Hadama, which is re- which is really, it's it's incredibly important in the way that that you're saying because first of all, from Adam, you know, Noah is is a replication, you know, a new Adam, perhaps a new line. Um, Adam, uh, uh, having rebelled, says the earth is the ground is cursed and the. I think it's the earth like the planet or just the ground um, uh, is cursed because of you. And then, and then God says, at, at, upon you know, Noah leaving the ark, um, uh, I will no longer curse the earth because of the human being. And so um, perhaps Noah rolls away that curse a little bit. But Noah does something also before that, which is that he um, that he offers an animal sacrifice, a set of uh, animal sacrifice, a real a whole. Yeah. Um, uh, Noach, Vanav, Noach and his sons leave. and the women leave, and all the all the animals are with them. And Noah builds an altar to the Lord and takes from all the all the pure animals and from all the pure birds, which I think we. Jews understand those to be the kosher ones, and offers uh, sacrifices on the altar. And God smells the pleasing aroma. And then God says, "You know, I'm not going to curse the the um, I'm not going to curse the ground because of the human being anymore. You know, listen, they're pretty weak creatures, but um, I'm not going to destroy them anymore. I'm not going to bring another flood. And the, the seasons are going to be regular, and and people can rely on things." Um, to, to just live life on this new planet. And um, I think that that is a lovely scene of Noah's gratitude for rescue and uh, Noah's sort of uh, orientation to the divine in a proper way. Um, it, it's not kind of, the, the rabbis have a lovely little line about this. It's not quite unrelated to what comes next about the, the being a man of the earth, which is that, that God, God can like, the, 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 the description of the Midrash is, you know, God can be intoxicated also. Like anybody who likes wine, the sages say, you know, is a little bit like God, who can also be intoxicated by smelling the reach nichoach, which that's like God's catnip. You know, that's just God's God's favorite perfume and and God's relents from some of the harshness. So I like Noah as the grateful, the grateful, um, uh, worshipful person upon being saved. Maybe the there, like okay, it. so then, then you know, the next scene, or there is there a transition? God says, "Pru be fruitful and multiply, umil u et and 
well, we're going to fast forward and Noah ends up naked in the tent by himself, I guess. We'll see. But, but the, the transition from Noah as the grateful, worshipful, uh, you know, survivor, but he's also, he's also got to confront the destroyed world. And this well, is where I think we have please. tremendous sympathy. I got, you know, Barry coming to me. Go ahead. What I'd like to suggest is that the, the background here is a broken relationship between Noah and God. That after the flood, God is no longer trustworthy. He's, you know, he talks a good game. I'll make a covenant with you. And the breach, this covenant, the foundation of any covenant is an element of trust. But how can you trust someone who's just destroyed the world? Words alone are not going to do it. So I sense that there's a degree of discomfort that Noah is feeling his way. So as a farmer, he's going to make, plant the vineyard. He's going to have a, a cup of wine because as he will learn from Tehillim, wine makes the heart glad. It's Rosh Chodesh today. He, he, said, he said Psalm 104 today. <laughs> so... And perhaps he always does it. I think I mentioned this last year. One of my favorite comments, it says, that he drank from the wine. So this one commentator says that his, his sin here is that he drank the same kind of wine he would have drunk before the flood without taking into account that the world, and by extension, he himself had changed. And he no longer was as strong as he had been as who could be if the entire world has been destroyed. And so trying to live like he did in the old days, he failed in the new days. So on the one hand, we have, I think, a tremendous amount of sympathy for Noah because he is that survivor and he really doesn't know how to cope with, with that world. On the other hand, I don't want to say that there's some judgment here, but, but there are different models of survivors there are, you know, we are 80 years after the, the great Mabul Adamin. And there were certainly people and individuals who, who were so shattered by their experiences, they could not go back to their lives. Their lives were destroyed. Their families were destroyed. And they, they just weren't able to, to pick up any of the pieces, understandably. And then there were, there were people who built, you know, entire lives, entire, entire communities, entire businesses, uh, you know, arguably, you know, some of the some of the most creative individuals in the state of Israel were were from that from that generation. Um, you know, I was listening before to to uh, Benny Lau who talked about Itzik Manger, Itzik Manger, Yiddish poet, who after the Holocaust had nobody, was completely destroyed, and and was lying alone in in his um, in a, in a place, you know, a godforsaken place in, in some residence in, in Tel Aviv or outside of Tel Aviv and saying, Ich bin Noach, I am Noach, I am Noach, I am after the flood, I have no, I have nothing. And, and he was, he was drinking and drinking himself to death, basically. And, and on the one hand, you don't blame a person like that. I mean, you know, he, on the other hand, there were people who, who had tremendous human fortitude to be able to pick up and, and do their lives. And yeah, do their I suspect that the, the higher numbers were not among the survivors that became productive, but were among the survivors who survived physically, but were profoundly damaged. We, but we you know, hear their stories in the same way. Sure, sure. You know, they're no, this is, that's yeah. part of the Jews of silence, um, which uh, we now used to refer to something else, but 
they also are a generation that we didn't necessarily address. And you know, it's worth noting that there were organizations in Israel devoted to working with the Holocaust survivors. You know, one of the most famous being AMCHA, which was later used for an organization here in the United States. Um, and it was very difficult work. This is um, an example, I think, of, you know, uh, this, is, this is a story which obviously our people have been reading, you know, for, for thousands of years, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years. And it seems to have a very powerful resonance now for, for people who live after the Shoah that, it, you know, like all Jewish history wasn't so easy before the Shoah, but this, this image of like, what does it take to be a survivor and, and the traumatized quality, um, it just, it's just incredibly, incredibly vivid. And exactly as you said, Elliot, you know, you do, you did find people who went on and built lives and even became, you know, tzaddikim in, in multiple different ways. Um, Wiesel himself in um, the accident does the, the female character, she's a, you know, she's been driven to prostitution and she's just a, an utterly devastated, uh, she's an utterly devastated person. Um, and he said, this is the testimony is to tell her story. Now with Noah, it's, it's, it's maybe a, a teeny bit different is because the story that the Bible tells is that everyone was bad and deserved their suffering. Noah was good and deserved his rescue, but is it simply like, is Noah the guy who, when the Nazis came to his town, happened to be in the cellar and got passed over and not noticed, and so he was saved by stroke of luck? Or, you know, or, or uh, is, is Noah the guy who got out in 1939 or something like that and has survivor guilt? He didn't deserve that. Or or does Noah just like, you know, he, he is the good guy. He is the tzaddik, Tamim Hayabedorotav who somehow deserves this, this new beginning. I don't know. Well, I think he's all of those people. But the Torah wants him to be Tzadzik B'dorotov because the Torah wants God to be shaping his destiny. And I think that one of the things that we didn't really discuss, but also is beneath the surface here, is we criticize Noah, who I think invites a fair amount of criticism, but we actually can't really think of anyone who would have, who certainly would have acted better. Okay. We want to say that we would have acted better, but I think the circumstance was so great that Noah really is the Adam. He is the man. This is what a human being, how a human being reacts in a situation like this. There isn't a second choice. Let me offer this one, okay, which is, Noah after the flood, different from Noah before the flood, I think that we can all agree on. But Noah acts with a certain amount of defiance. God says, pru or vu. I mean, Noah is already 601 years old. There's no pru or vu going to go on there, or maybe there will be, I don't know, those days, you know, what, what they were capable of doing at the age of 600, okay? But, but he certainly doesn't do that. He certainly doesn't engage in what God says that he should be engaged in. So he's the... The first defiant of the first defiant character, I would say Hevel, which we talked about last week, he's defined in a certain way that Hevel, uh, you know, is is not following the letter of the law about 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 tilling the soil. Hevel is eating meat. Uh, Noah is not following about Pruervu, and Noah is alone. 
Um, and there's a proto-defiance in there. And I would just, you know, it's a very important theme to me that Avram, you know, as obedient as Avram is, Avram, as we can all agree, Avram, you know, takes God to task on a lot of things. Uh, there's a defiance. So, so there's the, the seed of defiance in Noah here. I, I give him, I'm usually very, very critical of Noah. I want to be very sympathetic to this here. I'm sorry, dear Barry. Yeah, sorry. We have to think of the seed of Puerhu as well, because Noah's sons fill up the world, right? We have two genealogies. We have the, the, and the genealogy where all these peoples are going to emerge from Shem, Ham, and Yafet. And then at the end of the partial, we're going to get the genealogy that's going to lead us to Abraham. All right. Yep. So, so let's let's conclude with the genealogies. And Barry, tell us what you find interesting about the genealogies. And you can talk about chapter 10 and chapter so, 11. Well, I guess there are two things to say. So first of all, we do have the sense that the people after Noah are going to come and fill up the earth because in the genealogies are not names of individual people as much as are names of peoples, um, you know, groups of people that in other words, there's a lot of, a lot of population growth here. It's not just one family that's growing bit by bit. It's all of a sudden the earth is full of people. And the other thing I would note is that in the last genealogy in chapter 11, there is the sense that life has become more normal, that the generations from Adam to Noah are our superheroes. They live incredibly long periods of time. The shortest is 365 and the longest is 969. They have their firstborn son is, you know, they're 90, they're 100, they're 200. And now when we get to this generation from Noah, uh, the genealogy from Noah to Abraham, the childbirth is going to be at what we would consider a normal human age, 25, 30, 35. They're still going to live. They're not going to live quite as long, somewhere between 200 and 400 years. But we have the sense that after the flood, we're more in the world that we know ourselves. So the only exceptions to that are Shem himself, who's 100, and Terah, who's 70, and Abraham, who is 86 when he first brings forth a child in the world. But everyone from that, Arpachshad, Shelach, Ever, Peleg, Reu, Srug, Nachor, they're in, their, in, their, in that normal human age. So that's a fascinating thing about, about the genealogies. Um, I just want to point out that, that in, the, in the course of the first set of genealogies, now I just lost the spot, um, uh, Yoktan, one of the, that's, Shem's grandson, I think, maybe great-grandson, has some children, Almodad, Shalev, Chatzar Mavet. That's probably the best name in the whole Bible. He's the courtyard of death. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I should have named one of my children courtyard no, After all the people that died in the flood. What is it? That's a, a funny name. Uh, yeah. I happen to be reading Yechezkel, looking for something else, the prophet Yechezkel, and, he's, and he has this oracle about um, about going down into hell to see the uh, defeated peoples, and they're the names of the people in this genealogy. There's uh, Togarma, and uh, it's the Sidon people is the ones that he's speaking to, and it's you know Put Velud Togarma are the people he sees in Sheol, which Meshech uh, Meshech and Tuval, and and I just think that's tremendously interesting. He's speaking about this list of the mythic early peoples. Okay, so the Parsha ends 
uh, I think on, on somewhat of a mixed note because uh, unlike Noah, where it ends, the, you know, the Breshit ends with, you know, the, the calamitous uh, outcome of human, cre- human depravity, um, this Parsha ends with uh, already the birth of the genealogy of Terach. Terach is 70 years old and he has Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And then it tells us, it becomes a kind of footnote, but I think it's a very significant piece of information, that Avram is born into a family that experiences this loss, and that, that the loss of Haran, I think, reshapes the whole story of, of Avram and Terach, etc. We have, and this we have to lead, there's this whole notion of who this Avram is, uh, what kind of family it comes from, and and um, the backstory really, which is given to us in in you know just a few verses, uh, we're left really with questions as to what's going to be, what's going to happen, um, and that's where we have to leave it. Well, the 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 the, the, uh, the the terach part is is a super interesting part because when we get to that, so let's see where are we here in my book at the end. So terach. Um, Haran dies al peterach aviv be'eretz moladetzo vayikach Avram v'nachor. I'm sorry. Where's the part where it says vayikach terach et Avram b'no ve'et lot ben Haran ben b'no ve'et Sarai kalato eshet Avram b'no. So terach Abraham's father takes Abraham Sarah lot their whole generation vayitzuitam me'or kastim leaves or kastim. He's heading, he's heading in the same generation that Abraham is heading, but he doesn't make it. He only makes it to Haran and then he stops. And, you know, we're accustomed to thinking for a good reason that Abraham is like the path breaker and he starts something totally new. And it is true. But in some sense, Abraham is being a dutiful son and trying to make the same journey that his father made. Fascinating. With that, we have to leave it. We leave it on a cliffhanger. We'll see what happens when Abraham is told to go forth next next Parsha. It's been great. We we'll love to see you. We want to thank you all for joining us. It's always great to have you with us. We really appreciate your spending some time with the three of us. And on behalf of my buds, Shabbat Shalom.